Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder. You know, we have a founder that, uh, you know, is building something remarkable right now, you know, out of a really interesting, you know, country, you know, where they got started. But uh, we're going to be hearing about all the good stuff, building, scaling, financing, and all that that we like to hear. And also, especially in a very... Uh, very, very, you know, like very much up and coming market. You know, the segment that he's in, you know, there's a lot of hype, you know, there's a lot of good stuff going around it. Uh, and again, you know, you're going to love this. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Svilen Rangelov. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Alejandro. It's great to be here. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in Bulgaria? Oh, it was, in one word, interesting. Uh, so... Bulgaria was uh, had a totalitarian regime uh, with communism uh, until 1989. Um, it, it, that ended when I was about five years ago, uh, five years old, and um, and so so and my brother was born shortly after. But the early 90s was like the Wild West. It, there were a lot of economic crises. There were hyperinflation. There were um, you know, run on banks, uh, Ponzi schemes, you name it. It was super unstable. There was the Yugoslavia wars next door. So there was embargo on a lot of trade. So price were through the roof. Uh, shelves were empty. And like our dad had to line up for gas for like three days at the gas station. And our mom would like go and bring him food. So it was like, but that's not just for us. It's everyone in Bulgaria went through through that. But that kind of really made us very sensitive to the to, to the fact that if you live in the periphery and if it's not stable, like you end up paying dearly for that. So uh, it kind of informed us on, you know, what we're doing right now, which is with Dronomics to, to, to build a new type of uh, same-day delivery solution so that we can um, close the distance gap between, you know, big cities and small. So then in, in your guys' case, you know, like what was, did you have like anyone in the, in the family that was an entrepreneur or anyone in business? No, not really. Um, so our, our grandfather was in, in charge of uh, one of the regions uh, in Bulgaria. He was 
um, in charge of, well, he was the deputy and as a deputy, he, he got to do all the work <laughs> so that his boss could take all the credit. But uh, in a centrally planned economy, he was in charge of supply chain. But that's about as much of a touch point we had. Our mom and dad are a teacher and a journalist. So they were always very careful to, you know, invest everything in our education, but not really uh, take any risk. And they were very encouraging for us to go out and take risks. So we have a lot to thank them for. Uh, but our mom also went, you know, as a, you know, example of um, being very determined. She she heard that this American school in in Bulgaria, in Sofia, actually uh, the. The, the kids of the of the staff get to study for free because otherwise it's private and very unaffordable. So she went and got a job there uh, as a teacher. And then a few years later, when they were of age to uh, pass the exams and, and, and join, that was a huge trampoline for us because pretty much everyone who graduates the school um, goes to college or university in the US or Europe. Um, and um, we have a lot of friends from all, all over who's been, who've been super successful. Um, so in my case, I went to study in the U.S. I studied economics, again, uh, the entrepreneurship streak, um, and my brother studied aerospace engineering in the Netherlands. It sounds like the numbers, you know, was a, a constant there. So, so why numbers? You know, what's happening with numbers? You know, with with you and your brother, you know, problem solving, you know, numbers. Where did that come from? We've always been super curious. Numbers explain the world very nicely or at least help you formulate uh, hypotheses about the world. Um, so uh, numbers are great. We also care a lot about language, uh, you know, both our parents. Our mom is a literature teacher and our dad is a journalist. So language matters a lot. But as we see now with AI, there's a lot of similarities between numbers and language. Got it. Now, now in your guys' case, you know, like you, once you graduated, you know, you, you went back there and, uh, and you were doing a, a bunch of several companies. I mean, what were some of the projects that you were involved with? Yeah, so I graduated all seven at the height of the, uh, well, actually, just, just as the, the, the housing uh, market um, crashed, um, I, I had just uh, joined the company for uh, with a friend of mine importing furniture from Morocco to the US um, and you know a, a few months into this uh, the, the housing market collapsed and uh, it was just not useful for us to stay uh, anymore in the US um, so I went back to Bulgaria and got a job at a uh, you know got a safe secure job at one of the big four companies um, in tax consulting Economics was a great major because it doesn't force you to choose at the same time. Um, that's not always super helpful. So I felt that, uh, you know, back then in Bulgaria, there were mutual funds that had smaller portfolios than the investment club that I was running in my college. Um, so I just felt like, let me, let me go into something that I didn't know anything about so that I can learn, but still have the broad uh, look over many industries. And I, I'm, I'm of the type that always quits a job before finding a new one. Um, because for me, uh, you know, life is too short to be stuck in a dead end or suboptimal situation. So I would always alternate, you know, big company with, uh, let's call it a startup or a small business. A few of the things I did were, uh, well, perhaps the last thing I did before Dynamics was with a friend of mine. We uh, managed to 
to become the promoters for the J-Law concert in Bulgaria in 2012. And then, uh, you know, overnight, we became like one of the biggest promoting companies locally. It was a, the only and the best, uh, the most successful show um, in the country at that year. And then we did a few other huge, um, huge shows for some A-listers. But to me, that was interesting the first couple of times. Um, but when we saw the drone opportunity, you know, Jeff Bezos going on 60 Minutes, announcing how drones are the future of delivery and so on. My brother and I realized that actually, you know, people will go to concerts every day, but um, now, now is the time to, um, to join this uh, amazing and exciting emerging industry. So then let's talk about Dronomics. You know, at what point, you know, obviously you were talking about the point where the idea came to mind, which was watching the uh, 60 Minutes uh, episode with Jeff Bezos talking about how it will be the future. But how do you take that, you know, like from just watching that to all of a sudden there is excitement, then, you know, you start having conversations with your brother and then all of a sudden the company is up and running. I mean, walk us through the sequence of events there that needed to happen. Sure. It- it's exactly like you say. It was not a single light bulb moment. There were a few of these uh, as it was bringing our heads. Our initial response to the to to the small drones idea was like, "Oh wow, this would work only in suburban America." But for like ninety five percent of the world, it's not going to work because you have, you know, multi story buildings, people, uh, it, it, you know, so so many challenges um, in urban delivery. And ultimately, we felt this is a market that will be won by, you know, China or somebody like Amazon with unlimited funds, um, because it's essentially small plastic electronics, and uh, and and those are the only folks who can do them really well. And we then looked at the other end of the spectrum, where you also have a duopoly, Airbus and Boeing, with these huge, expensive vehicles that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, have four million parts each. Uh, and so on. And uh, in the middle, you have these small single-seat, two-seat aircraft, and there's so many of these GA um, aircraft around that we noticed that there's something going on there that as you scale down the aircraft, um, you you don't scale, you don't shrink the pilots, you don't shrink the cockpit um, after a point. So you you really get to experience a lot of benefits if you separate the cockpit from the aircraft. So then we naturally started looking at, okay, the problem, for example, in Bulgaria was not really the last mile because the last mile, uh, what small drones solved the last mile, that's usually served in uh, in, in these economies by, uh, I mean, it's, it's a great source of labor, so you don't want to displace that. But what's always been a challenge is the connectivity between countries or the connectivity between cities. So that's why we decided to go to the Minoa. And then the, the last, I guess, the the straw that broke the camel's back was um, as as he, as Consti and I were chatting. Uh, he was still in the Netherlands. He was like, "Hey, when are you coming to visit me? Because uh, uh, I need you to bring me some Bulgarian cheese because I don't really like the Dutch cheese here." So, and I was like, "Well, I'm not going to visit you all the way 2,000 kilometers just to bring some cheese. Like you're the engineer, send me a drone and I'll send you some cheese." So that was kind of um, the joke of how. It started. Then we obviously um, talked to a, a couple of professors of his uh, from the university. Um, we, we essentially laid out the plan and said, "Hey, do you think if we do this, this, and that, 
do you think it could work? And they were like, yeah, it would check out. You could actually create a type of airframe that's new and uh, efficient and cheaper to produce and cheaper to operate. So uh, then we needed funding and we uh, applied to an accelerator here in Bulgaria. Uh, that was just starting. It was an initial 25,000 euros check for 8% of the company. It was kind of like the same YC deal uh, at the time. Um, and yeah, that's how we started. The funny thing is my brother then um, said he's not going to shave until the first full-scale airplane flies successfully. And I said, you know, great idea. I'll support you because we both hate beards. So it would have been beards of shame. Well, we only got to shave like um, a couple of weeks ago. So, oh my God. Yeah, eight years later eight right? with a beard. Yeah. Eh? Unbelievable. Now, I guess for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Dronomics? How are you guys making money? At Dronomics, we're building um, a global cargo drone airline. So we, we saw that existing airframes are, are not very helpful, and we need to create a new type of airplane that is small, unmanned, easy to mass produce, uh, cheap to operate and cheap to, cheap to manufacture. Um, so we ended up designing the whole airplane ourselves simply because we couldn't buy it on the market. Um, we call it the Black Swan. It can carry about 800 pounds uh, of cargo or 350 kilos, and it can travel up to 1,550 miles or about 2,500 kilometers. So it's essentially like a flying delivery van that can you know, cross all of Europe in a single flight and can enable same-day delivery over long distances. Um, it is an airplane. Um, the pilots sit on the ground um, and it's simply very few uh, efficient. The business model is customers like freight forwarders, uh, logistics companies, uh, Fortune 500 um, companies, they, they will use, um, they, they will buy capacity on our flights the way that they would buy them on other cargo airlines. And then we do that middle mile delivery between city A and city B. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. Now, how was it like starting a company like this in Bulgaria? You know, I'm sure it was not easy. 2014, again, the Y Combinator deal was 25 grand. Uh, the the university of my brother also had an accelerator they would also give you you know 25k to start with and in bulgaria 25k bulgaria uh, at the time was you know the lowest cost country in the eu it was also our home so we knew that we could stretch the dollars uh, the most here so my brother came back um but 
that's kind of where the advantages more or less ended. Because if you were to draw a Venn diagram about, you know, customers, investors, supply chain, um, and talent, Bulgaria barely touches any of that when it comes to aerospace and the sector that we're in. Bulgaria used to have airplane factories until the Second World War. And then because we went, ended up on a side of the uh, Iron cur Curtain, uh, that side essentially decided Bulgaria should not build airplanes anymore. It should just buy them and the whole industry died. So for 70 years, nobody ever made aircraft in Bulgaria. And we were the first company. So we had to kind of start from scratch. We had to attract a lot of uh, folks to move to Bulgaria. Usually those would be Bulgarians working abroad and so on. But we had to do a lot of heavy lifting. And also we had to do it on a fraction of the budget of anyone else in the West. I guess in hindsight, that kind of saved us because to date we've raised around $40 million. Um, and had we raised that money on day one in 2014, uh, we would have spent it, burned it all, and we would have shut down. Why? Because the regulations didn't exist until six years after we started. So um, in hindsight, it was a blessing that we chose to be in Bulgaria. And also, I mean, you were alluding to it. I mean, you guys have raised over 40 million bucks and you've raised it from 1,500 investors. I mean, that's that's insane. I mean, that's a lot of investors. How did you guys structure, you know, to raise so much money from so many people? Yeah, well, we, so, so the first several years of, I think the first six years, we had only raised about three or four million total. So the, the vast majority came in the past couple of years. Um, as we were hitting more milestones, getting more validation, um, and, and more and more people started, you know, believing that such an innovation happened here uh, with our setup. The, we, we have, essentially on our cap table, we have the, the Accelerator 11, the, our first investor. Uh, there's Speedinvest, the fund from Austria, um, and uh, Founders Factory, also not another accelerator, but this time from the UK. Um, and then the rest is uh, a wide array of angel investors who are from logistics, technology, aviation, people that um, we've met, people that uh, have introduced us to other folks. We have a former CEO of DHL as an investor, former CEO of Thomas Cook as an investor, uh, folks from the drone community, um, and so on. They, it was this huge rolling fundraise that essentially I was on the road for many, many years without a break. Um, so it, it's not because we wanted it to be this way, but it's because that's how it happened. I, I think the, the largest number of investors came through uh, SPVs, um, again, on those safe notes that we were raising on. Um, and we even had to uh, you know, innovate in the financing because in 2021, we, um, we listed an SPV on the Bulgarian Stock Exchange. There's an EU regulation that allows you to do that, to list a fresh new entity. Um, and you get to raise money up to a certain limit. It's quite low. Um, but, that's, um, but those few million that you can raise, um, that SPV essentially bought a safe note in our company, just in a similar way that any other SPV can buy a safe note. So uh, that, that actually helps a lot with, uh, resonates a lot with our vision about the democratization of air freight. So 
in a similar way, we're democratizing access to exciting startups. But it's not because that was what we wanted to do initially on day one, but it's because it was a, a good source of capital for the type of businesses we are. And for the people that are listening, an SPV, a special purpose vehicle, is basically an entity where you are able to group uh, in the U.S. is up to 99 investors per vehicle. And then you just have a managing member that manages the whole thing. So instead of like going after 99 people for chasing for signatures, you would go after, you know, whoever is the managing member of the SPV. I guess the question that comes in, you know, here is, Willem, you know, is 1,500 investors. I mean, how do you go about Investor relations. Oh my God, how do you do that? It takes time and attention, but without them, we wouldn't be here. So um, it, it is uh, j just what you have to do. Um, the, the the good thing about that is that uh, a lot of them are, you know, super helpful. Um, and then um, and then there's some who just decide, you know, what we trust you. Uh, and are completely uh, hands off. So so far, we've been super super happy about the relationship we've had. But obviously, again, I don't know fifteen hundred names. Uh, I know that there's names behind those SPVs, but I communicate with the the, the managing member, the representative. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now in this case, you know, also for the for the team, how many how many team members do you guys have? We're now 170, um, and 120 are in Bulgaria, um, mostly in engineering and prototyping. So we we do our own um, building of the aircraft. Uh, if, if you visit us here in Sofia, we've, we're very vertically integrated. We make not just the parts, but also the tooling for the parts and, and the jigs and, uh, and even some of the machines and like the oven and so on. We have to make it just simply because throughout the years, we couldn't afford all these things. So we have a lot of DIY things uh, here. Um, and then there's the airline team, which is now growing. Um, last year, we, uh, in fact, on the same exact date, exactly one year earlier than the first flight, um, we received the license to operate as a drone airline uh, under the new EU regulations. So we were the first company and so far the only one to have that. Uh, so that's quite exciting, which basically means as soon as we're done with our flight test campaign, uh, before the end of the year, we'll be able to start commercial service uh, and we'll be several years earlier than anyone else. And how hard is it to get one of those licenses? It is very hard. Um, you essentially have to demonstrate that you meet uh, pretty much the same criteria for uh, for safety and procedures uh, as a standard manned airline, but also you need to demonstrate that the vehicles that you would operate would be safe. In our case, what really helped was our focus on fixed wing and um, existing propulsion. So we're not electric. We don't use batteries. There's no batteries or electric engines that are certified. Uh, that would come anything close to the range or payload that we need. Uh, and that's going to take years until those battery chemistries get improved. So, um, so, so that's why we leverage a lot of existing technology and we're able to demonstrate uh, to the regulators that um, our, our system has the necessary safety. And that's why we're licensed and others are not. 
Now, how has it been pushing this with your brother? You know, there's a, a book, you know, it's called The Founder's Dilemma. And it talks about the dynamics, you know, of co-founders. And then also, you know, when you have family team members, you know, and they talk about their the, sometimes it's tough because you don't want to hurt each other's feelings. So how do you guys go about, you know, really dynamics between the two of you guys and really understanding, you know, what is right for the business and how to divide and conquer on responsibilities? I would say that our upbringing had a lot to do with the type of relationship we have. We we grew up very close to each other, um, and yet very respect. So our age difference, six and a half, we have different sets of friends and so on. But so we learned to respect each other's boundaries. At the same time, you know, obviously our fields of expertise, um, mine is on the business side and his is on the engineering side, um, make the separation of responsibilities very easy. Um, but I would say is the combination of those two things, the fact that um, it's the person you can trust, you know, absolutely, you know, infinitely. Uh, that's a huge um, burden that's lifted off your shoulders when you're starting a company. So I'm not saying you have to do it with a sibling or a family member. Just find somebody that you can um, trust absolutely and unconditionally, and you know that they trust you in the same way. And um, it's going to make a ton of difference because it's going to be difficult on the entrepreneur journey. Um, and you need to know that uh, they have your back in the tough times. As we're talking about the journey there, you know, that you alluded to, you know, you got to always think about the vision. You know, the vision is something that uh, you share with employees, the, with the 170 employees that you have, with the 1,500 investors that you also onboarded. And uh, I guess in that regard, you know, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Svillian, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Geronomics is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, the world is in the year of 2100, and we've just been named the most important company of the past century. <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing it will be a, a pretty good world. Um, no, seriously, my brother and I, we're not building this for the quick exit. I guess that's the third part of why it works with us. Um, we are very family-driven uh, and oriented, so we want to build this into a generational company, but also one that uh, makes a difference and, and matters. There's a lot of um, economic research, actually, when we're starting that we dig into, and um, there was one piece where it said, um, the single most effective measure that the country can do uh, to increase its, um, you know, GDP, economy, well-being, would be to improve the conditions of its supply chain. So there's the traditional, you know, economist playbook about liberalize everything, privatize everything, remove tariffs, lower taxes, and so on. All of these are good, but nothing is as good as just unclogging your arteries and letting the blood flow uh, easily to every single organ. Because that's kind of what happens, right? With this huge urbanization uh, trend in the past 70 plus years, you have so many parts of each country that are kind of like deserted. All the opportunities aggregate in these huge centers of commerce, and then everything get, starts getting you know, more difficult at the outer areas. So we're um, we're very driven to kind of try to reverse or at least alleviate that because 
by the year of 2100, actually the global population is projected to be around 11 billion and 90% of that future growth will be on the continent of Africa alone. So uh, where distances are huge, roads um, are in not great condition at, <laughs> at best uh, where they exist. So the the only and obvious way would be to to fly. So um, it's about serving people now, but also serving people in the future. That's really driving us. Now we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. I mean, you guys have been pushing this business for close to a decade. You know that in startup years, because startup years are like uh, dog years. You know that's a that's a ton of time. You know. So imagine if I had the opportunity of putting you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to 2014, you know, that moment where, you know, you saw that um, episode, you know, with uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, on 60 Minutes. And uh, let's say right there, when you grab the remote and you turn the TV off, you were able to appear right there and have a sit down with that younger self next to that younger self on the couch. And you were able to give that younger villain one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? We kind of executed it, but the piece of advice would be never be out-hustled. So we realized starting in Bulgaria would be outfunded, um, you know, outnumbered, and so on. But what we realized was you know, you, you could never, if, if you never allow yourself to be out hustled, then uh, you have a fighting chance of success. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. I would say you're right. If you keep doing that, then you will get to where you want. I love it. That's it. That's it. Persistence. Persistence. You know, in the end, I love the way that you've been putting things, you know, today with us because in the end, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you just got to keep at it, keep working. So I really appreciate that, Svelin. So for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Best way is to follow us on social media at Dronamics um, or dronamics.com, our um, website. Uh, get in touch with us. There's a number of contact um, there. Amazing. Easy enough. Well, Swillen, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.